So we continue this morning in our series in the book of Revelation. We've worked through the first four chapters already. This morning we're in chapter 5, which I just read for you. And the central image in Revelation 5, of course, is a scroll with seven seals. And we'll work towards exploring that central image this morning. Often, I review a little bit before getting back into the study because I know a lot's happened between last Sunday morning and this morning. And sometimes just like when you're watching your favorite show on Netflix, you go to watch the next episode and you're thinking, so wait, what happened in the last one? And sometimes it's the same, frankly. Let's not be overly spiritual. I know. Sometimes it's the same on Sundays. So I often review a little bit before we jump back in. But today, we're just going to jump right back in. Because in order to understand Revelation 5 properly, it's going to require a little bit of review anyway, sort of as we go. So I'm not going to have sort of a separate review. Just as I go along, we'll, we'll see a little bit of what's transpired so far in the book of Revelation. So I'm just going to go right into our first major point drawn from the text, which is this. There are two major locales in Revelation. There are two major locations in Revelation. And here's where the review comes in to illustrate this point. Where were we in chapter 1? Where? What location? What locale were we in in chapter 1? Someone call it out. Okay, earth. Yeah, that's, that's specific enough. <laughs> Alright, so John was exiled. Specifically, we were on the island of Patmos. But yes, you're, getting, you're, you're, you're approaching what I'm about to say here. More to the point, earth. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, where were we? Earth. Earth. Okay, in, chap- in chapter 1, in chapter 1, we're on the island of Patmos, which is on earth. In chapters 2 and 3, we're in Patmos still, and we're speaking about Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which were all cities in the first century Roman Empire on earth. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we are on earth. In chapter 4, however, the locale changes, the location changes. Where were we in chapter 4? Heaven. Okay? Chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. Come up where? Heaven. Okay? So, I trust that you can see this first main point in the text. There are two major locales in Revelation. Earth and heaven. The relationship between these two locales is essentially the theme of Revelation. As a whole, the book. What is the relationship between heaven and earth? This is basically one way of saying what the book of Revelation is about. And the way that Revelation answers that question, what is the relationship between heaven and earth? The way that Revelation answers that question is to assert that heaven intervenes in the affairs of earth in such a way 
that the end result is that all rebellion against God on earth is quelled. And that in the language of the Lord's Prayer, God's kingdom comes and His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the book of Revelation about? That's basically it. God, or heaven, if you will, intervenes in the affairs of earth in such a way that the end result is that all rebellion against God on earth is quelled, and in the language of the Lord's Prayer, God's kingdom comes, and His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Revelation tells us that God will intervene in the affairs of earth to bring about that glorious end. That is the relationship between heaven and earth. Without God's intervention, however, without God's intervention, earth and heaven would remain radically different realms as they are now at present. In fact, without the intervention that God has already made in human history, heaven and earth would be even more radically different realms than they are now. Heaven would be the place of God's special presence. And apart from any intervention in the affairs of earth on God's part, earth would be void entirely of the presence of God in any special way, other than just the sense in which He is omnipresent everywhere. If there were no intervention of heaven on earth, there would be no Bible, there would be no church, there would be no gospel. Heaven would be full of glory, and earth would be full of misery. If God did not intervene, not only would heaven and earth be distinguishable, but heaven and earth would be entirely separate. And as R.C. Sproul said, it's important to be precise about these terms. If I distinguish, Sproul said, if I distinguish between your soul and your body, I have simply asserted that your soul is not the same thing as your body, and that your body is not the same thing as your soul. But if I separate your soul and your body, I have killed you. Right? Of course. Of course, in Christian theology, heaven and earth are distinguishable. Heaven is not earth. Earth is not heaven. We know that, right? Otherwise, why, why would anyone ever want to die and go there if this was just the epitome of blessedness? Right? We know that going to heaven is an upgrade. Right? We know that this is not heaven. And if earth was... Pardon me, if heaven was simply like earth, but infinite, and you got to pay bills and deal with stress and the aches and pains in your body and the conflicts that you have, you probably wouldn't want to go there forever. We know that heaven is not earth and earth is not heaven, so we distinguish. And yet, the good news of Christian theology is that heaven and earth are not entirely separate. There is some connection and some interaction between heaven and earth. 
And this connection and this interaction between heaven and earth is God's intervention in earth's affairs. The good news of Christian theology is that there is a relationship between heaven and earth. And they are not entirely separate realms with no connection and with no interaction between them. Otherwise, we would be utterly hopeless. And we would be even more miserable than we are now. So what does all this have to do with Revelation chapter 5? What, this first point, that there are two major locales in Revelation, heaven and earth. What does all this have to do with Revelation 5? Well, it helps us understand why John was so upset when no one could be found to open the scroll. The scroll is the central image here. Look how the chapter begins. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see, the scroll contains God's interventions on earth between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. By which I mean His birth as a baby in Bethlehem and His earthly life, death, and resurrection as His first coming, and then His return at the end of all things as His second coming. We know that the scroll contains God's interventions on earth between His first coming and His second coming from a study of chapters 6 and 7, which will come in the next number of weeks. And the scroll in Revelation 5 doesn't simply provide knowledge about God's interventions on earth between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. In the vision John records for us in Revelation, opening the seals of the scroll actually accomplishes God's interventions on earth between the first and second coming of Christ. The events recorded in apocalyptic imagery in a vision that John sees in Revelation 6 and 7 are caused by, are precipitated by the opening of the seals. So opening this scroll doesn't just result in us getting knowledge about how God's going to intervene in the affairs of earth. Opening this scroll or not opening this scroll is the difference between God intervening on earth or God not intervening on earth. Between there being a connection between heaven and earth in which God is active intervening on earth or in which heaven and earth are entirely separate and there is no intervention of God. The stakes are high, therefore, in terms of what the scroll, or in terms of whether the scroll can be opened or not. If the scroll is not opened, then what God has purposed to do 
which is symbolized by the writing on the scroll, front and back, so that as, as Beaky said, it symbolically shows us that there's no omissions, God's not, not left anything out, there's no blank space, and also there's no room for addition. What God has purpose to do in terms of intervening in earth's affairs between the first coming and the second coming of Christ has, has been decreed by God. But it would never actually be accomplished in time and space if that scroll can't be opened. There needs to be this connection between what, what God has decreed and it actually being accomplished in time and space. Saying you will do something is different from actually doing something. Planning and purposing something is different from actually doing something. The opening of the scroll is the doing. It's the accomplishing of the decree. The execution of what is written in the scroll. If the scroll is not opened, there will be no intervention from heaven as the kings of the earth and the rulers gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. This is why John weeps when no one can open the scroll. Robert Mounts says, The call is for someone who is worthy to perform the supreme service of bringing history to its foreordained consummation. God Himself does not perform this task, but calls for a mediator. The challenge has gone out to all those dwelling throughout the entire creation, and no one is able to accept it. The universe itself is morally incapable of affecting its own destiny. Who can bring about God's purpose? That His kingdom will come and that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Namely, what is written in the scroll. Again, the universe itself is morally incapable of affecting its own destiny. Who will bring what God has decreed, written on the scroll, to pass in space and time? You? Me? Mia Motley's administration? The DLP? Right? Like who? Who can bring about this purpose? Without someone to open the scroll, it remains in the planning and decreeing and theoretical stages, and it's not executed in time and space in human history. There is no intervention of heaven on earth if no one opens the scroll. This is why John weeps when no one is found worthy. But as the vision develops, one is found who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. There is one who, in the language of verse 5, can open the scroll and its seven seals. Look at verse 5. Who is it? It is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. And as we read on, this one is not only a lion, but a lamb, according to verse 6. He is said to have been slain, and yet we've also read that He has conquered. Putting together verses 5 and 6. Lastly, in John's vision, He has seven horns and seven eyes, according to verse 6. 
Let's look at each of these descriptors in turn. Genesis 49, 9 and 10 has Jacob blessing each of his sons before he dies. Or Israel blessing each of his sons before he dies. Speaking to his son Judah, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what we see in this prophecy is Israel speaking to his son Judah, a solitary individual, but obviously he's speaking of a time far off where someone from Judah's tribe, someone in Judah's lineage, will have a scepter. And all of his father's sons, all of Judah's father's sons, will bow down before this Lion of Judah. Which means all of, which means that this one who holds the scepter from the tribe of Judah will rule over his brothers. And not only will he rule over his brothers, but Genesis 49.10 says, To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Which is a phrase used to denote the nations. The peoples. And so, all of those in Israel and all of those nations outside Israel shall bow before this lion-like leader who holds a scepter, who shall descend from Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, we read of the Lord promising to David many things about his offspring or his seed. Among them, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we have this prophecy of a leader from the tribe of Judah. Judah has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son and so forth who eventually has a son named David. And then a promise is made that there will be a son of David who has a kingdom. And so this promise is getting more specific. Lion of Judah and Root of David are not different prophecies, but they're increasingly specific prophecies of a king who is to come. A lion who will rule over his brothers and who will rule over the peoples. He's called the Root of David, interestingly. And I wrestled with that particular phrase a little bit this week. Because when you think about the offspring of David, you obviously think about his children. But to me, when I think about a root and a tree, I think that the root 
gives birth to the tree, so to speak, right? Or gives gives life to the tree. It's an interesting it's an interesting phrase. Let me let me read you from Isaiah chapter eleven, verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That may, that language makes sense to me because it's coming out of. David, or it's coming out of Jesse, who was David's father, right? So coming out of Jesse, coming out of David, is this messianic ruler that Isaiah chapter 11 talks about. Isaiah eleven ten says this, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So that same chapter... Isaiah 11, speaking of this messianic ruler, calls him both a shoot from the stump of Jesse and it calls him the root of Jesse. So, in any case, we have biblical precedent for understanding this as the same person, the offspring of David. So, whether you agree with what I'm about to say or not, I think in some sense it's neither here nor there. Maybe a bit of a moot point. But, you remember when Jesus was answering his critics and he said if David calls um, if, if David calls his son sorry uh, what's the uh, what's the language of it someone someone find that passage for me sorry how is he also his son right because in their thought, you get inferior and inferior, more and more inferior as generations go by, right? So if he's David's son, how could he also be David's Lord, right? So to me, it's a similar kind of concept. If he is a branch from David's house, how can he also be a root, right? And I think it's a similar concept there. So whether that's correct or not, I'll leave it to you to meditate on. But in any case, we have biblical precedent for understanding this. So the Lion of Judah... And the offspring of David, the the root of David, is clearly this messianic figure. This messianic, the root word of that is Messiah, right? The anointed one, the promised one from the tribe of Judah, from the lineage of David, who will rule over his brothers and who will rule over his nations. Now we, when we hear that language, we rightly think of... Or, or sorry, not rightly, we naturally think of a lion-like figure, don't we? When we think of a great king, we think of a lion. And the scripture doesn't rebuke us for thinking of a lion. In fact, the, the scripture gives us that language and endorses that language. We ought to think of Jesus as mighty. We ought to think of Jesus as majestic. We ought to think of Jesus as powerful. He is. And he's going to destroy all of his enemies and as we've seen people are going to call on the rocks and the the mountains to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of Jesus when he returns he is a lion he has teeth right but what's interesting is Revelation 5 goes on after the elder says don't worry the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and his seven seals So John starts to look around. And what does he see? Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain. And skipping down to verse 7, and he went, the lamb went, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So this lion is also a lamb. He conquers, but he has been slain to explore the, the, the language of this passage here. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Well, this all goes together, believe it or not. The lion is the lamb and he conquered by being slain. You see, our sin required that our that we be punished as those who are guilty. The justice of God could not simply overlook our sin. But a just judge would punish the guilty defendant. And so there was this sentence passed over us which was outstanding. And God requires not merely that our sin be punished, but that we are actually righteous. That we, that we do what is good. It's not just a righteous life. is not just avoiding doing the things that God says we shouldn't do. A righteous life is also doing the things that God says we should do. Both of those are different sides of the same coin. And so there was this need for righteousness. And there was this sentence hanging over us of punishment that we deserved. And Jesus came. He had a job to do. He was given a task. And how did He conquer? How did He overcome that task? How did He... relieve us of the sentence of condemnation that had been passed over us and win that battle on our behalf? It was by being slain. It was by substituting Himself for us so that the punishment that we deserved was laid upon Him. It was by living a righteous life, turning the other cheek, instead of biting back, turning the other cheek like a lamb, instead of biting back like a lion, that He conquered, that He overcame. And Philippians 2 tells us that because... The language of it is because being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, or, or because of that, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. You see, it was because the man Christ Jesus accomplished that which He was sent to do that He was... It highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. Obviously, as the eternal Son, with respect to His divinity, He was already glorious. He already was co-eternal with the Father, all of that. And yet, as the mediator, He was exalted by virtue of, because of, the conquering that He did. Because He proved Himself worthy to be in that office, to hold that office. He was exalted. And so all of these 
images point us to Christ Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lion and the Lamb, who conquered and yet had been slain. All of this fits Jesus. The last bit of imagery that this passage gives us is seven horns and seven eyes. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, I don't know whether it is simply the seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God, or if it is the seven horns and the seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God. But either way, we know that Jesus is, is whom is He whom to whom the Father gives the Spirit without measure, according to John chapter 3 and verse 34, which is denoted here by the seven spirits of God. We looked at this at greater length in chapter 1, so I won't belabor all the exegesis, but it doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits. It's a symbolic number denoting the completion and the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here is not, is not the Spirit in measure, but the Spirit without measure. Eyes is wisdom, knowledge, right? Seeing everything, beholding everything, omniscience. And horns is power. So omnipotence, right? And the power and the omniscience of the mediator is from the Spirit of God, of course, right? And so either way, whatever, whatever is denoted grammatically, we recognize that the man Christ Jesus has been anointed without measure for the mediatorial role that He holds by the Holy Spirit. Leon Morris says that what God is looking for here in terms of someone to open the scroll is moral worthiness and not raw power. So in other words, we're not looking for a team of oxen to which we can hitch one of the seals and put it in a vice grip or a clamp and have the oxen pull and pop the first seal off. Right? We're not looking for, for power. Who has the strength to pull off a seal that's sealed really tight? Right? Like, the, like a woman might hand, hand her husband the jar, say, get the lid off, honey. We need some man strength here. We're not looking for raw strength. We're looking for moral worthiness. And Jesus, as the one who has been given the Spirit without measure, who is the appointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lion, the Lamb, who has conquered, who has been slain, who has the seven horns and the, the seven eyes, He is worthy. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. So, going back to the two locales and what the scroll is, God's decree. Right? And it's, it's decreed, but who is actually going to bring it to pass? Through whom will God bring what is written on the front and the back of the scroll to pass in space and time on earth? Through whom? The one who opens the scroll. And who is that? Jesus. 
And so not only is he through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that was made, but he is, it is he through whom all of God's intervention on earth between his first coming and his second coming will come to pass. And without whom no intervention of God will come to pass. All of God's purposes come to pass in and through He who opens the scroll, Christ Jesus. So we have here then, obviously that was a little bit more of a technical exposition, which I think is somewhat unavoidable. But if we zoom out now, after we've looked at all of those little titles, the big picture here, which is presented to us symbolically in apocalyptic imagery, right, in a vision. But what we have here presented to us is that there is heaven and there is earth. And God has interventions written on a scroll, ways that he is going to intervene in earth's affairs, written on the front and back, which as Beaky says, means that there are no omissions. There's no blank spaces that God hasn't spoken to in terms of what needs to be done, what needs to be dealt with on earth. The scroll is full. It's written on the front and back. And there's no room for addition. There is no co-sovereign with God. God has written what needs to be written. He's planned out what needs to be planned out in terms of heaven's interventions in earth's affairs. But what is presented to us symbolically here is that there is a need for an intermediary between heaven and earth who will take what God has decreed and execute it on earth. And Jesus is the one who will execute all God's purposes on earth. It is in Jesus and through Jesus and by means of Jesus that all of God's interventions will come to pass. I've said before that Jesus is like the neck of an hourglass through whom everything that God intends to give to His people by way of covenant comes and passes through that neck to us. The sand goes from the top to the bottom by means of that narrow neck in the middle. Or Jesus is like the neck of a funnel through whom everything that's poured into the funnel must pass. This is the imagery of Revelation chapter 5 here. It's a, it's a Christ-centered vision of God's judgment and salvation, which we will see unfolded in the next few chapters coming to pass. What is the appropriate response then to this worthy one? We see praise like ripples in a pond. Three rings of praise, if you will. First, we see the praise of angels. In verse 8, we see the four living creatures praise. And we know from last week in our study of chapter 4 that these are the seraphim. But in verses 11-12 also, we also see the praise of angels. I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. 
the appropriate response to this worthy one is the praise of the angels. Secondly, the praises of the true Israel, the church, comprised of both Old Testament and New Testament believers. As we saw, the 24 elders represent the the total sum of the people of God. Old Testament and New Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. 24 around the throne here. In verse 8, they worship. They pray. They offer up to God, to, to the Lamb specifically, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Pray and praise Thee without ceasing. Lost in wonder, love and praise. And they sang a new song, verse 9 says, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The angels praise. The people of God praise. The believing number from Old Testament times and New Testament times. We praise. And then the third ripple flowing outwards is global universal praise from every creature. Look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now again, what's presented to us here is a vision What's presented to us here in in chapter 5, John saw it as if it was happening, but it has not yet happened. Because obviously our unbelieving neighbors and friends and family members have not sang to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. But we know that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Right? And so what is presented here is the mediatorial work of Christ Jesus in executing God's Decrees. Everything, every intervention of God that is going to happen is going to be brought to pass through Jesus. And the angels will praise. And the church will praise. And eventually, every single creature, every creature, will also likewise join us in praise. Some of you may know a modern song by the David Crowder band in which there's a line that says, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. But he borrowed that from an older writer who said that several hundred years ago. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Certainly there is ability in heaven to heal our sorrows 
Right? Probably hardly anyone would disagree with that. Certainly there is ability in heaven to heal our sorrows. But will there actually be any intervention of heaven in the affairs of earth? Revelation chapter 5 says, yes, there will be. In and through Christ Jesus, there is a relationship between heaven and earth. Earth and heaven are as yet distinguishable, but they're not entirely separate. And in and through Christ Jesus, God will bring to pass everything that He has decreed. Everything written on the front and back of the scroll. This is the good news of Revelation chapter 5. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And earth has no sorrow that heaven won't heal in and through Christ Jesus.